You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher for MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. On today's show, we're going to talk about a wild night of baseball. Last night, Carlos Rodon threw a no-hitter, last night being Wednesday night as we are taping on Thursday morning. We're going to talk about Ronald Acuna, Corbin Burns, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the Red Sox, and as always, a few guys that you should know. Matt, I have to tell you, so as I said, we are recording this on Thursday morning. I almost called you last night at like 11 p.m. and said, can we just record right now? Because I was I was so amped by not just the, the Carlos Redondo hitter, which we'll get into in a second, but like that happened, like that ended, it was super cool. And then I flipped over to the Dodgers-Rockies game right after Bud Black got ejected. The Rockies are in the middle of a 26-inning scoreless streak. And Justin Turner hits a home run that lands right in the guy's nachos in the front row. And like, okay, that's like a fun internet moment, except... Then they went to instant replay to make sure he didn't interfere. So you have this like very serious instant replay showing slow motion shots of nacho cheese exploding all the time. And I just thought to myself, this is wonderful. This is my favorite night of baseball I've had in, I can't even remember. We need to talk about it right now because I could just run through a wall. Uh, And I did. I let you sleep. I tried to go to sleep too. And and here we are. (laughs) Well, I I wasn't sleeping. I was watching. Although, uh, not to get too deep into how the uh, the ballpark dimensions uh, sausage is made, but um, my wife was sleeping and I recorded in my bedroom when we record uh, remotely. So that would have been a problem. So it's better that we're doing it now. <laughs> and it's like, I've, I've, were we together? I guess I've rewritten the start of this so many times because the other day I was like, oh, okay, rule changes in the Atlantic League. That's a good place to start. And then it was like, oh, well, Ronald Acuna is killing the ball. We should talk about that. And then I thought, oh, hey, you're mean Mercedes hitting literally 500. No, let's talk about that. I, I do want to talk about those things. Um, Carlos Rodon. Wow, that was so cool. So Rodon last night, a 114 pitch, no hitter and seven strikeouts. And here's the thing that stood out to me the most. He did not get a strikeout in the first three innings. Like if you were watching that game last night in the first three innings, he's throwing like 91, 92, and everybody's putting the ball in play. And considering his history, you know, he missed much of 2018 with a shoulder injury and then got Tommy John surgery in 2019 and came back last year as a reliever and was kind of bad and got non-tendered. And if you see him not missing bats in the first three innings, throwing 91, uh, even against a weak Cleveland offense, you're probably thinking to yourself, this guy's going to get lit up. He's going to get he's going to get out by the fourth inning. And he just kept throwing harder and harder and harder. And then by the ninth inning, he's throwing 98.8. He threw a fastball 98.8 miles an hour. It was his fastest pitch in five years, which is amazing. And I, there's a cool note I want to share. And this is uh, from, from Lucas Apostolaris, who, who does some work with baseball perspectives. I didn't know this. Uh, Rodon's in-game velocity increase is actually common for him. Uh, he's actually over his entire career averaged 92.9 the first time through the order, 93.9 after that. And that is the biggest increase among active starting pitchers, which was cool. But anyway, we're going to be calling this the toe hitter from now until the end of time. That was so much fun to watch. Uh, yeah, it was. And another note on that track, um, this is from the um, the kind of like crazy facts about the no hitter that uh, Sarah Langs and, and Andrew Simon put together. Um, only two left-handed starters have ever thrown a pitch 98.8 miles per hour faster uh, in the ninth inning of a game or later. CeCe Sabathia and James Paxton. Um, and now... Um, Carlos Rodon, I just want to point out that last year on the podcast, Rodon came up. Okay. I wish I had, the, I wish I had the audio. And I was like, <laughs> I'm still in on Rodon. And you kind of gave me like, oh, yeah, that guy. Like, I, I could I could feel you rolling your eyes. So I'll take this moment to gloat uh, a little bit. He was like, I mean, I think I probably always kind of like, I want to say overrated him in my head. But I was like much more in the weeds on draft coverage when he was a draft prospect. And when he entered his his junior year at North Carolina State, he was like the guy. There was like that Strasburg level of hype around him. Um, he, his junior year, his draft year, he didn't turn out to be had a kind of a disappointing year. He ended up being the third pick in the draft. And obviously, he's, I'm not ready to call him like an ace, um, but it is cool to see that he's managed to appear, at least turn a career, career around and at least have like uh, an amazing moment. It's kind of funny. I feel like the White Sox have cornered the market on like 
high draft pick, big prospect starters who go on to throw surprising uh, no hitters. They had Philip Umber a few years ago, and now uh, Carlos Rodon. Both number three picks in the draft, I think. Uh, you know, you, it wasn't their draft pick, but I guess you could toss Lucas Giolito in that conversation as well because it ended up obviously not being disappointed. Um, you mentioned that Rodon was the number three overall pick in 2014. I don't know what the actual worst top two picks in a draft were, but I'm just going to say it was that year. Brady Aiken and Tyler Kolek. That's the most cursed top two ever. Um, one of my one of my college friends, by the way, is now a college basketball writer, and he keeps tweeting about Tyler Kolek, who apparently there's a different one who plays hoops for George Mason, and it just kind of breaks my brain every time that I see it. Um, I do want to talk about the ninth inning really quick because I think like you know every no hitter has a play. Like I saw you yourself and and some other Twitter friends tweeting about where Dwayne Wise was last night, and the play on this one was when Josh Naylor. Hit a ball down the line, and Jose Abreu had to dive feet first and just barely beat him. And I, there's two things I want to say about this. First of all, I'm so happy it was a clear play. Like if that was like a ticky tack instant replay thing after like the replay controversies we already had this year, I'm just so happy it was like, oh yeah, he was out, he was out. Why did Josh Naylor slide in the first place? <laughs> what? But two things actually. First of all, even if he did slide. If he'd reached out with his leading hand, he's probably safe, but he didn't. Like He let that hand go past the bag and tried to reach out with the other hand. Why did you slide? Why? Just run. <laughs> like, that's like a, you know, there's no hitters. 95%, 98% Carlos Rodon and 2% Josh Naylor, I guess. Yeah, yeah. as they were pointing out on the broadcast, like his, his right arm was like farther ahead than his left arm. So it was almost like if he actually just like reached, if he had actually touched the base, with his right arm, he would have been safe. I was glad the no hitter didn't end on that. It was a, it was a really like I, I was impressed with the poise that uh, Jose Abreu made in uh, in converting the play. The play the, the the play for me up until that point was in the bottom of the seventh when Jose Ramirez hit a line drive to deep left field and like Andrew Vaughn was out in left field. Andrew Vaughn who's barely ever played any left field in his life and I was like oh that's a hit and he like. I, I'm impressed. He just like, I mean, it was hit kind of right at him, but it's like the kind of ball like you could, if you're not an experienced outfielder, you might freeze on and he made the play. I was also kind of shocked that they didn't take him out of the game <laughs> and they kept Andrew Juan. Um, everyone was talking about how amazing it was that he threw the perfect game, sorry, the no hitter with um, Zach Collins behind the play because Zach Collins has gotten like a lot of you know, grief for maybe not being a, a good defensive catcher. I was like, I was more impressed through a no hitter with Andrew Vaughn in left field. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was wondering, like, I mean, you mentioned it this morning. Like, do they not have any other outfielders? And it's like, well, Adam Engel is very good if he's hurt. Uh, Larry Garcia was actually playing shortstop because Tim Anderson wasn't available. But they had Nick Williams on the bench, and you know, Nick Williams is no great shakes, but he's better than Andrew Vaughn. Uh, and then, like, twenty minutes ago, they DFA'd him. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> two days, two days after hitting fifth, he got DFA'd, and. Um, I'm trying. You probably remember this better than I do. Didn't the Mets DFA like Mike Carp the day after he hit cleanup one, one day a bunch of years ago? Because <laughs> that's what I remember. I, I also I want to talk for a second about what this might mean for Chicago going forward. Because yes, this is like an amazing achievement for Carlos Rodon. But in his first start against Seattle, he had five shutout innings. So he's thrown 14 scoreless innings so far, and his velocity is up. Um, to 95.2 miles an hour. That is a career high even before he got hurt. There was a good a good article over the spring where he'd worked with new pitching coach Ethan Katz um, on his mechanics and cleaning up his lower half and whatever. And you probably remember when we talked about the White Sox coming into the season, the thing that concerned me the most was rotation depth, right? Like Giolito's great. I really like Lance Lynn. Dallas Keuchel's you know, perfectly good at what he does. And then after that, I was like, I don't trust Dylan Cease. I don't know what you got out of Michael Kopech. Like, oh, wow, Ronaldo Lopez is still kicking around. I was like super concerned about their rotation depth. And I'm not going to say Rodon is like, quote unquote, back. But what if he is, right? What if like he's a legit middle of the rotation starter now? Like how much does that change your perception of the White Sox? It certainly helps balance out some of like the early season disappointment of losing Eloy Jimenez uh, for the season, basically. Maybe I guess he could be back at the end. And the fact that you know, I will admit that one that I, one prediction I might be wrong on is my uh, return to <laughs> return to dominance by Yohan Moncada, who has not really looked very good um, thus far. Still a lot of swing and miss in his game. So there's definitely some reasons to, especially on the offensive side, to push the pause bu- button on the White Sox hype train. But if Rodon is coming in, as you said, and like we're not saying even saying he's an ace. If it's just like, hey, this guy's like a reliable number three starter, that changes the equation for this team a fair amount. 
There are two more White Sox things I want to get to quickly before we move on and talk about Ronald Acuna. Uh, the first one, and this is obvious, huge bias on my part because he's a friend. Uh, Jason Bedani and Steve Stone calling that game last night at the end was phenomenal. Like they added so much to the experience and Stoney kind of, you know, kicked it aside at the end and said, okay, Jason, you take this. It was it was so good. Like they made that moment um, big and it was cool that the fans were there, right? Because it's, it's not the same without the fans. Yeah, although, you know, I think you mentioned this the other day to me. I can't remember if it was on, on the podcast or not about how you wish there had been an alternate, like, Hawk Harrelson feed yeah. of something happening. Like, it, it was I, during the uh, – when Larissa let Matt Foster walk, like, 10 guys in a row. Yeah, I mean, like, that's sort of how I feel. I mean, I remember – I still remember vividly watching the Mark Burley perfect game. It was like – I was working in the ESPN Magazine office at the time. It was like a weekday day game, so everyone in the office was watching it. I remember his call to Wayne Wise – I remember the ground ball to Alexi Ramirez and like uh, Hawk Harrelson screaming out like Alexi, like it was like it was awesome, you know. And like I, I was always a big uh, Hawk fan. I had a uh, Hawk Harrelson alarm clock on my desk at work um, whenever I get back there. So uh, I, the, for the for the White Sox, they went like Hawk had his own charm, and now they've got Benetti, who's amazing in his own right. Um, the last point I want to make on the no hitter is how crazy is it that Joe Musgrove threw a no hitter the other day. And his only blemish was a hit by pitch. And last night, Rodon, his only blemish was a hit by pitch. It's just the sixth time in history that a pitcher missed a perfect game by a hit by pitch. And two of them have happened within five days of each other. Are we going to see a a record for no hitters this year? Because I sort of feel like we might. (laughs) I mean, it's more about the pitch count, frankly. I guess you could see. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a record. If you're you're considering um, combined no hitters, then yeah, it it wouldn't surprise me. you know, that Indians, not not to take anything away from Rodon, but I'm about to take something away from Rodon. That Indians lineup is... It's not great. Not great. Not what you want. And the final thing on the White Sox, because we can't we can't go any further talking about Chicago with at least mentioning uh, your mean Mercedes. Last night, he got three hits and blasted a home run. And because of what Rodon did, nobody's talking about it, right? He is hitting 500, 548, 816. And as Matt can tell you, I was like two minutes late to the recording this morning, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I was looking up career starts. He has 43 career plate appearances. His weighted on base in that time is 567. And in the entire history of baseball, there are one, two, three, four, five, five guys who through 43 plate appearances have gotten off to better starts. Now, that's impressive on its face. The names eh, hit or miss. Um, Aristides Aquino. Two years ago, that was cool. What is he? There are two names I've actually never heard of before. Uh, John Croner of the 1936 uh, Browns. I think this is Browns. I don't have it in front of me. And Larry Rosenthal of the 1936 Chicago White Sox. Now, the two names I have heard of who had like decent careers, but not necessarily great ones. uh, Craig Wilson in 1998 and Brian Giles in 1995. I don't know. Those aren't exactly luminaries, and I'm not sure this predicts greatness. But hey, top five all time through 43 plate appearances—that's something cool. Yeah, I mean, well, it's more just like I, I'm. I think everyone is just like just kind of want to keep watching to see like can he can he do this? Like you know, because it's amazing. Not just like basically every team in baseball could have had this guy, and even the White Sox—they brought him in as their third catcher. It's not like they knew what they had, right? So it's like you know, like it just shows how little we know um, about anything. All right, moving on from a guy who's off to like this wildly out of nowhere great start to a guy who I will already tell you is a Hall of Famer. He's 23 years old. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Ronald Acuna Jr. is on an absolutely different level right now. He is hitting 447, 500, 1,000. He has 14 hits in his last six games. Um, and it's, you know, he's hitting the ball hard, obviously. But. He's making better swing decisions. Like if you think about the comparisons between him and, and Juan Soto, I've always kind of chosen Soto, even though Acuna is a better outfielder and a better runner because uh, Soto has like all time great plate discipline. And now it's like, well, what if Ronald Acuna just decided, oh, I'm going to do that too. Uh, his is his chase rate. So like percentage of swings outside the zone. It's the thing you don't want to do. Here's it for him in his four major league seasons. Uh, 24%, 24%, 20%. 10%, 10%. It's like he's reached he's reached another level, and I don't know if he can sustain this all year long, uh, but if he can, he's the MVP. And there's like no doubt about it, he's the MVP. He's, he looks, I mean, right now, he looks like, you know, the, he looks like the best play, player in baseball. And, you know, certainly things can, early season always skews our perception, right? Because like if he did this 
Um, and this applies to a lot of, you know, basically every player and team we're talking about. Like if he did this over two weeks in June, you might notice it, but you wouldn't like change your view of him. You'd be like, you know, it'd be like, oh, he's on a hot streak, right? So like when it be- when it's what begins your season, it always kind of skews um, the perception. But in this case with him, where it looks like maybe there's some improvement in plate discipline, then it's like, okay, well, like this guy may have unlocked another level. And that's just a lot of fun. Um, he also has my favorite um, quote of the season thus far when he hit like a 450-foot home run the other day. And then after the game, he said, I'm not going to lie. I like hitting home runs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost saved this for, for our my rant. Like we always pick a rant at the end of the show. And then I felt like this was just too salty uh, against something that was like objectively cool. A couple days ago, I think this is the Sunday night game. You know, he beats out this ground ball to shortstop in the first inning, right? Because he's got elite speed and hustled his butt off and that was great like you will never ever be able to hear anyone say he doesn't hustle because like look at that and it was cool like no doubt it was cool but i I don't know is it cooler than him mashing baseballs into the sun i don't know that it is and you know dd gregorius held that ball for like an hour and a half um i don't know i i feel like that was there was it was cool but like it's not as valuable to me as you know him crushing the other thing that's interesting here is the braves are not off to a good start so Acuna has a, uh, a line reddick, like I said, 447, 500, 1000 WRC plus of 287, where league average is 100. He's at 287. All other Braves hitters combined, and they have good hitters 186, 263, 339. Freeman's been like, okay. Uh, Ozuna looks lost. Pache's already hurt. I was surprised to find out, like, Dansby Swanson has been 15% below average for his career. I don't know why I always thought he was better than that, and he's just not. And then you look at the pitching and it's like Max Fried uh, hasn't looked good and now he's hurt. You know, Ian Anderson's been okay. And it's like we talked so much about what the projections didn't like about the Braves coming into the year. And I know it's been two weeks, but a lot of that's like coming to fruition. You know, it's almost played out exactly like we thought. It's been a weird year for them, right? They start out 0-4, then they won four straight games. <laughs> and now they've lost four straight games. Um, this 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 four-game losing streak began with the, um, you know, we've had two toe incidents uh, in baseball uh, this week there was the uh, the Rodon uh, perfect game lost by a uh, hit by pitch on a toe and that instant replay on a Sunday night. I actually I'm, I'm curious to hear your thought on that replay. You know, you can accuse me of being a company man. I actually thought that was like replay kind of working. Like it took like a bunch of different. Yes, I think that like bombs Alex Alex, I was, Alex bomb bomb Alex bomb's foot didn't touch the plate, but it took like seven different angles before you could feel that definitively. And based on the standard of only overturn it, if it's obvious, I didn't think that that was so egregious by the way, the, the way the replay system is set up. Now, if you just, if you want to say the replay system should be the official should just, the replay official should just make their own decision and not take into account what the calls on the field. That's a different discussion, but based on the way the rules are written, I actually didn't think it was that egregious. Matt, did, did he touch the plate? Uh, I don't think so. No, no, no. He did not touch the plate. That that is that's all I need to know. I I I agree with you. If you want to say like, yes, it was called by the letter of the law, and the law is maybe uh, faulty. That's fine. I'll I'll buy that. Uh, but come on, he did not touch the plate. That's that is a rough way to lose a game there. Oh, there's I mean, no question. It's a rough way to lose a game. But it's not like we <laughs> people haven't been losing games on missed calls for et- eternity. Um, you know, so it's. I, I was, I was, you know, just I guess maybe because it was Sunday Night Baseball and it was like the only game that the baseball world was watching. I feel like that like heightened the criticism of the play. I feel like if that happened on a Tuesday night with like 15 games going on at once, it would have gotten like a fraction of the attention. I agree with you. Obviously, you know what I liked about that play uh, is that they they challenged Marcelo Zuna like he wasn't even out there <laughs> because we've been talking for years about how weak his arm is, and I I, I think it was 230 feet deep. I don't have it right in front of me. But that is an obscenely short sack fly to tag up on. You don't do that if it's to Acuna, who's got a cannon. You don't do that to Pache, who's got a canyon, cannon. Uh, but to Ozuna, I mean, his throw was like 77 miles an hour. And did he get him? Yeah, I guess he technically got him. But, you know, good on the Phillies for, for making that challenge with like Roman Quinn coming up because Ozuna can't throw. And I don't think third base coaches are aggressive enough. I loved, I loved the decision. Yeah, no question. It was, I was watching the game and like, you know, I think Azuna's like bad arm is one of like the like most for me, one of the most like memorable discussion uh, discoveries of Statcast is like, oh, wow, like this is like an outlier. <laughs> yeah. This is like like the outlier that you would not necessarily have noticed. So it's clear the clubs have picked up on that because I don't think there's any other left fielder in the league 
that they would have tagged up on right there. Chris with a K Davis, but he's not really even a left fielder anymore. Um, one bright spot for the Braves that I feel like we need to dig into more at some point in the near future. Huascar Anoa uh, has thrown 12 innings. He has 15 strikeouts and two walks. So that's pretty cool. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We are going to go through our three batter minimum. We picked three interesting topics that are going on in baseball this week. And the first one is, when do we get to say Corbin Burns is the NL Cy Young frontrunner? I understand that Jacob DeGrom exists and there are other good starting pitchers in the National League. Corbin Burns, two years ago, had an 882 ERA. It was very legitimately the worst in the history of the Milwaukee Brewers, including that year in Seattle. This year, 30 strikeouts and zero walks to start the season. 30 strikeouts, zero walks. I saw some people tweeting yesterday, yeah, but it was against the Cubs and the Cubs offense stinks. That's true. That's not what's happening here. Since the start of last year, so combining 20 and 21, a minimum of 50 innings, Corbin Burns has the best ERA in baseball, tied with Shane Bieber, 173, the best fielding independent pitching in baseball, the fourth best strikeout rate, and the most important thing to me here, the second lowest home run rate. Because if you remember his 2019 problem, he was still missing bats but they were pounding baseballs into the stands. And Corbin Burns, I think is, I don't want to say the best pitcher, not enough people know about, because I feel like baseball people have to know about him. He finished sixth in the Cy Young last year. But the way this guy has transformed from someone who, you know, barely belonged in the bigs two years ago to this is one of the coolest stories of the early season to me. I also appreciate his emergence has allowed me to finally stop confusing him and uh, Jacob Barnes, because I did (laughs) for a long time. But more seriously, it's like it's not just also that he's um, you know the numbers. It's just like he's fun to watch. Like thirty strikeouts, zero walks. There was like a I think I'm, I'm not sure if it was like Pitching Ninja or Pitchers List. They did like a gift yesterday of his like ninety eight mile an hour backdoor cutter that was just like ridiculous. And it's one of the best pitches I've ever seen. Um, like there's just no way to hit it. It like starts out like you know. Two, in, two to three inches outside the strike zone. And then like at like the 55 foot mark, it just like makes a sharp left turn and is right on the corner of the zone. It was amazing. But his story is so cool. Cause like I said, he got lit up in 2019 and 882 ERA. And a lot of it was like, he's got this, he had, that's importantly, he had this four seam fastball and it was, it was thrown hard and it had high spin, but it was straight. It had no movement and it was so true. And it got lit up that year. 425 average and 823 slugging on his four-seam fastball. So I went back to the start of the pitch tracking era in 2008, and I sorted all the four-seam fastballs by weighted on base against to try to find the worst. His wasn't the worst. It was the second worst. There was only one four-seam fastball season that was worse. That was Chris Young in 2016. Uh, He was out of the game the next year. So what did Burns do? He just stopped throwing it and he invented new pitches. Like the cutter, like you said, is amazing. Um, I found this clip and I... I'm kind of surprised this didn't get more play. This was after 20, I guess it was spring training last year, right? So, you know, he's coming off this horrible year and he's talking to Adam McAlvey, who's our beat writer for the Brewers. And there's a video where he's like, yeah, I think the slider is one of the best pitches in baseball. And it's like, 
you just had an 882 ERA. And you know what? He was right. Like the slider, even in that terrible year, had the highest whiff rate of any slider in baseball. And I just think it's a cool story where how many Corbin Burns's over the years in history have been lost because you post a year like that and maybe the next year you're in the Western League, you know, and they saw, you know, a lot to like about him. And obviously he committed, you know, himself to fixing things and look at him now. Like he, I know DeGrom exists. He's got to be the front runner for Cy Young at this point in time. <laughs> Two starts in? Sure. Three starts <laughs> in. Three starts, Three starts in. I think it's it's cool that also my favorite Corbin Burns fact is that he is college teammates of Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers at St. Mary's College, which is just kind of random, similar to how Jacob DeGrom was not college teammates with Corey Kluber at Stetson, but that they both went to Stetson. It's like these random uh, random pitching factories. As so long as you don't ask me to identify what state the, that school is in, then yes, I would agree with you completely. See, see, uh, uh, Stetson is in Florida, yeah. and uh, St. Mary's is in California. It's where also where first first claim to fame was Mark Tian from Moneyball. That was like that they that the A's had discovered this guy at this random college. All right, item two: Vladimir Guerrero Jr. looks phenomenal to start the season. You know, everybody wanted to see him have this breakout year. And again, it's early, obviously, but so far, Vladdy Jr., 390, 519 on base, 585 slugging, an OPS over 1,100. And I think if you were to ask people, what do you need to see from Vladimir Guerrero Jr., people would say, stop hitting the ball on the ground. And you don't want to oversimplify things, but ground ball rate is down 8 percentage points. Uh, The walk rate has doubled. But here's the thing I found that I think is really cool. He and uh, the Blue Jays talked a lot this winter about conditioning, right? About how he needed to lose some weight, get in a better shape. And it sounds like he took it really seriously. And we can track top running speed, you know, with the StatCast metrics. And although it is early, like if you look at the top of the sprint speed leaderboards, you see like Byron Buxton, Trey Turner, Tim LaCastro at the bottom. It's, you know, Yachty Molina and, and Pujols and the guys you would expect to be there. So there's clearly a signal here already. The number one increase from 2020 to 2021 is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. No one has added more speed from last year to this year than he has. And I think that's really cool because it's not like we need him to be fast. You know, no one really cares about him stealing bases or beating out bunt hits or anything. But if you're talking about a guy who has committed himself to improving his athleticism and his conditioning and his flexibility, and he's clearly running faster, even if the speed isn't the point, that goes a long way towards, you know, backing up all the uh, the eye test. Because if you watch him play first base, he's pretty good. I don't know if Matt, if you saw his stretch the other day against the Yankees, like I was sitting on my couch and it hurt my legs watching him make that stretch. It was really impressive. I know exactly the play you're talking about. I'm, I agree with you. The The speed is a great indicator of just like general, you know, fitness and taking a care of like what people said was the biggest, you know, one of the big concerns with him. Um, it's exciting to see his, I don't know, I guess breakout is the right word or like what, what appears to be a breakout. The other thing I want to mention about the Blue Jays is, um, you know, in the in the preseason, we talked a lot about how Dunedin would play and that like the right center field gap at Dunedin would lead to a lot of like surprising home runs. I don't know if you saw Bo Bichette's yeah. home run, walk-off home run yesterday. Yeah. And that was like, granted, it's no, no less, I guess it's no less silly than some of like the right field home runs to Yankee Stadium. But it was like, oh, there's a fly ball to right center. Oh, that's a walk-off home run, I guess. Uh, I'm of I'm of two minds on this. First of all, you're totally right about the Bo Bichette one. Um, that ball would have only been out of two parks right there. And surprisingly, Angel Stadium, because if you think about Yankee Stadium, the short porch is like closer to the foul pole and then it gets deeper in right center. But I, I've heard a lot of broadcasters saying that about all the uh, home runs in Dunedin. And it's like, okay, on Bichette's, yes. But when Aaron Judge hits a ball like 114 miles an hour, don't tell me that's a Dunedin home run. Like that's a ball that goes out of Yellowstone Park. (laughs) So it's like it's both. It can be both. Our third item here is, have you noticed the Red Sox are good now? We and I think everybody were pretty down on the Red Sox because uh, they used to have more good players and now they have fewer good players, it seems. But they started off by getting swept by Baltimore, which is pretty embarrassing. They have since won nine straight games. Uh, Per the Red Sox, they're the first team in the history of baseball to start the season with a losing streak of three games and follow it with a winning streak of nine games. They got swept by the Orioles. They then swept the Rays and swept the Orioles and so far have won three of the first four against the Twins. If you were to look at the Fangraphs playoff odds, and I will preface this by saying before the season, the Fangraphs playoff odds were probably higher on the Red Sox than most anybody else uh, would have been. They right now have the third highest playoff odds in the American League. And I'm actually going to be a little more aggressive than that because number one is the Yankees. That makes sense. Number two is the Astros, who I like a lot of things about the Astros, but they've started off at 500 and now like a third of their team is on the the COVID 
IL. We don't know if it's positive tests or contact tracing or whatever, but obviously their season is being uh, you know, inhibited right now. And number three, the Red Sox. Are we in on the Red Sox or is this just like a thing that happens in April? Um, well, I think that the one thing that gives me reason for some optimism with the Red Sox is I'll admit I was down on JD Martinez. Like I, you know, he's, his numbers, it wasn't just last year. Um, wasn't purely a coat. Like it wasn't just like uh, last year, last year was bad, but it was like, he was, you know, if you go by weighted runs graded plus where 100 is average, um, in 2018, he was at 170, which was basically like his peak. And that's like way, way, way above average and awesome. 2019, 139, um, at age 31, then last year, yes, a short season, it was 77, but I was like wondering, okay, this guy's going into his 30s. This class of this type of player often sees a steep decline as they get into their mid-30s. Like if he's more of like, even if we say 77 is an aberration, he's just like a 110 way to runs created plus guy. I'm not sure like how he's really, if he's moving the needle for the Red Sox, he's been awesome thus far so uh, good. <laughs> on the young season. And then also their other like stars are hitting, you know. Devers is raking. Xander Bogarts is raking. Um, Alex Verdugo is a good hitter. Um, you know, not as good as Mookie Betts, who he was traded for, but like he's a good hitter. So like the guys, they need to be good because it's a little bit of a stars and scrubs offense. Um, have been good. Um, the other guy that I want to mention on that team is Matt Barnes. Yeah, um, who's been a good reliever for a while, but thus far has been you know Josh Hader esque. Um, he's pitched in six of their nine games. Has not allowed him to run. run. Um, and it's he's just been he's been lights out. So um, there's there's some things to like about them, especially when you compare it to some of the teams in the, in the American League that are struggling. Yeah, and there's two other pitchers I want to talk about briefly. The first is Eduardo Rodriguez, who has 12 strikeouts and one walks in you know, one walk in two starts, um, and he's been a very good pitcher, you know, for the last couple of years. But obviously, you know, he was the guy I think with along with Yuan Moncada that we pointed to last year as you know evidence of how serious catching COVID could be because Rodriguez was the one talking about uh, having heart issues, you know, and you started worrying not just about his baseball career, but about his personal future. And to see him back at all, is cool. And to see him pitching this well is really cool. The other guy, here's the name most people I think probably don't know. Garrett Whitlock is a rookie rule five reliever. He got drafted from the Yankees, I believe in the rule five draft. If you haven't seen his changeup, I encourage you to go look up video because it's really good. Nine strikeouts and no walks. And I don't know how many times you've heard me say pitchers are too good for this world. Here's a rule five guy who has nine strikeouts and no walks in his first three major league appearances. Super unfair. Um, I have an off the cuff question for you that I don't actually know the answer to. As you were talking about J.D. Martinez, I clicked on over to baseball reference just to look up his his stats. And the baseball reference playoff odds have the Red Sox at 18 percent as opposed to the 57 percent of fan graphs. I don't know off the top of my head how differently they do these things, uh, but clearly there are differences. So I'm going to put this to you. Are you more in on 18 percent or 57 percent? That's a great question. I think I'm probably more in because I mean, it's just one of those where I've, if I've got to choose one, I think I'm more in on 18 percent. It's like a one in five chance than than is it a, a, a two thirds chance. basically. <laughs> yeah. Um I think that I think it's you know the truth is somewhere in the middle. But if you had to make me pick one, um, I still have concerns about the pitching depth and also I mean also the hitting depth, just the depth in general. So um, that would be that would be my uh, my take. You, I yeah, I think I agree with you. You know, like obviously we're both cowards and want to say in the middle somewhere. But I would agree with you if I if I had to pick one, um, I do think a lot of the. A lot of the projections, not not the computer ones, but just like people's own projections were, you know, colored by just some of the bad feelings around the team, right? Like all of the 2018 World Series outfield is gone. You've traded Mookie Betts. And I didn't agree with some of that. And I agreed with some of it. Like if you have Mookie Betts, you never let him go. But as we talked about, I liked the um, the deal they made with Kansas City a lot because, you know, I love Franchi Cordero. Andrew Benatendi is off to a pretty lousy start in Kansas City. He's got a 561 OPS plus. It's now been like two and a half calendar years since he's actually been good. And I think uh, even if it's, let's say, distasteful to lose Mookie Betts, um, Bloom has probably earned the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's doing a little bit when it comes I, to building a baseball team. I think you mean 561 OPS because a 561 OPS plus would be quite good. Well, yes, that is that. Listen, only your mean Mercedes can get up to a 561 OPS plus. We will take a quick break and we will be back. We'll talk about uh, underrated, underrated guys you should know and finish off with our purpose pitches.
This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, we like to each week highlight a lesser known guy that everybody should know about. For me, I'm going to go with Mets legend Philip Evans, even though he plays for the Pirates now. Philip Evans was a 15th round pick by the Mets in 2011. 61 plate appearances for them in 17 and 18. Didn't really do that much. Actually made the opening day roster in 2018 and was DFA'd like a week later. Spent 2019 with the Cubs AAA affiliate and never made it up. Got signed with the Pirates last year and got off to a great start. In 45 plate appearances, hit 359, 444, 487, and then had his fairytale season come to an unfortunate end on August 20th when he collided in the outfield with Gregory Polanco. Broken jaw, concussion, missed the rest of the year. Uh, Worked hard to come back this winter, made the roster over Todd Frazier, and he is crushing the ball again, Um, combining his two seasons now with, with Pittsburgh, 351, 444, 558. And this is what I think is cool. Every time you see us talk about hard hit rate, we're generally talking about hard hit per batted ball. So when you make contact with the ball, how often is it hit 95 miles an hour of exit velocity or more? And it's cool and it's useful, but maybe less so for guys like Miguel Sano who swing and miss a lot. So one way you can get around that is to look at hard hit per swing, right? Like when you swing, are you making good swing decisions? Here's the list of hard hit per swing leaders. Uh, Number one, Ronald Acuna, sure. Number two, Manny Machado. Number three, Philip Evans. And number four, Aaron Judge. Is it too early? Is it a fluke? Is he this good? Yes, probably. Uh, But also, those are like real dudes on that list. He's been starting at third with Cabrian Hayes injured, but he can also play some left, some right, and first base. Is he real? I don't know. I know that this Pittsburgh Pirates team should be giving him as much run as they possibly can to find out. Because he is a guy, if he's like a real breakout, that is huge for them. Yeah, no question. He's a little, I mean, he's on the old side, right? He's been around forever. As you said, drafted in 2011. Um, and he was like kind of a prospect for a bit. He was like, I think he was a second baseman um, earlier in his career. And he was like a second baseman with Pop. And that was like kind of his profile and like never really put it together. But like, this is interesting. And like, the thing is with a team like the Pirates, it's like, is this guy part of the next like contending Pirates team? Probably not. But like, if he turns out to be good, like, those are good problems to have. You can sort of like figure that out. So I'm imagining he's, you know, if he stays healthy, I imagine he's going to be in the lineup, you know, for 140 games this year. And we'll see where, where things stand at the, um, uh, come, uh, come September. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you, he's a little bit on the older side, but he's only 28. And if I think about other, like, you know, later career breakout guys, you know, Max Muncy was 27 when he had his first big year for the Dodgers. So there's, there's time if this is really a thing. I think there's a time for him. I think it's more about like how it aligns with like what the pirates are, are doing. But like, again, it's like a good problem to have. Like if it turns out he's good, you'll figure, you know, you know, yeah. uh, they'll figure it out. Well, he'll be 50 by the next time they're in the playoffs. So it's not gonna let's be nice now, Mike. We're, you know, we're in a, everyone's in a good mood today. Let's, let's, let's I'm calm. sorry. Um, uh, the guy that I, my, the guy that I think we should be talking more about, and he did make some news over the weekend is um, Marlon's infielder, Jazz Chisholm, who, I'll admit, like, I looked at him last year when he came up and he was really bad. And I looked at him and I was like, this guy is like a string bean. How is he ever going to hit the ball with authority? I was just like, I don't really see how um, this guy is ever going to be an impact major leaguer. And my opinion on him has changed pretty quickly. So here's a little background on Jazz, uh, Jazz Chisholm. He was signed uh, by the Diamondbacks as an amateur free agent in 2015, July 2015, $1,000 signing bonus at the Bahamas. So there's not a lot of talent coming out of the Bahamas. So he's like could be part of a, a wave of, of baseball players from there. Traded for Zach Gallen um, straight up 
uh, at the trade deadline in 2019, one of the more fascinating challenge trades um, in recent years of like two guys with similar service time clocks being like traded for one another. And it might just be like a mutually beneficial trade. I feel like almost that almost is a separate discussion. Um, and Chisholm has always been a confident guy. He said to uh, uh, D-backs beat reporter Nick Pecoro in 2017, I think I could be a really great player in the show. I could play 15 or 20 years. That's the goal I set for myself. Like this season, I set a high goal to hit 400. That's the goal. I set a lot of high goals for myself. If you aim high, you miss high. I love that outlook. Um, I also love the fact that he showed up to opening day this year with bright blue hair. Um, and then he made news over the weekend when he hit a Jacob deGrom 100-mile-an-hour fastball into the upper deck at City Field. And that was like kind of – I was like, wow, I didn't know that he could – hit for any power. And I guess, you know, I should have done my homework because in 2018 in the minors, he had 25 homers with 23 doubles. And he clearly just has like, whatever it is, even though he's, you know, 5'11", 184, he has, um, he has something, you know, whether it's bat speed or wrist strength or something that there's definitely some pop there. Um, he's right on the young season. He's hitting 259, 400, 630 with 10 strikeouts and seven walks. You like to see this, the, the walk and strikeouts be similar. He already has more barrels this year, he has five. Then he had it all of last year, four in half as many plate appearances. So, like, the Marlins are kind of a weird team where they've got young, some interesting young pitchers. Their lineup is mostly just kind of a mix of, like, old veterans who are, like, some decent players. But, like, there's not really an identity or, like, hey, these guys are part of, like, the Marlins' future. And he's, like, kind of the one guy in their starting lineup who I think is that. And he's a lot of fun to watch. Got a twenty percent walk rate too, but um, that home run he had off of Degrom was on an zero and two count, and I can't really think of like a, a more detrimental situation to a hitter than being down zero two to Jacob Degrom, and that ball was high. I don't even think it was a strike; it was like above the zone, and he takes a hundred upstairs and he pulls it against the best pitcher alive. And I, I am with you uh, entirely, especially looking back to that Gallon trade because Zach Gallon's turned out to be like a really good pitcher for Arizona, and. The uh, this could still work out because Miami, I mean, everybody needs pitching, but they need bats more than they need arms right now. And I just I I like Jazz Chisholm a lot um, just as a person and as a player. So I agree with you. I really I really hope this works out. Uh, we are going to move on to our purpose pitch. We always like to rant about something. I have a rant. Um, the Yankees, the Yankees game, the Mets game yesterday, they were playing the Phillies. And in the top of the second inning, JT Romuto hits a ball to left field. And Dom Smith floats back and back, hits him right in the glove, and he gets charged with an error, which like, of course. And then this morning, they changed it to a double. And I, I'm confused by this because, you know, Dom Smith has worked hard to be a competent fielder. He's never a great one, but the ball hit him in the glove. You know, it was like a 95% catch probability. Uh, what are, what are we doing here? Why are we, do, why are we having scoring decisions uh, like this? Because now this changes, uh, you know, his fielding numbers. And it changes Romuto's hitting numbers, and it changes David Pitch, uh, Peterson, the pitcher's numbers, because a ball that should have been caught wasn't. And now we're going back and changing it to an error, uh, excuse me, from an error to a double. And I don't know; it probably bothers me more than I should. And I just think we should ban official scores. That's that's my hot take for the day. I don't think you agree with that. One. I no, I agree strongly. I've been on the ban the error uh, train for the bandwagon for a long time. I think the errors is it's like one of like the the from reading Bill James that has stuck with me most the idea that like to make an error you have to do something right which is get to the ball yeah and there's so much bad defense that happens that involves you not getting to the ball and yet you can't make an error on a play you don't get to and the fact that earned runs have become the measure by which we measure pitchers measure pitchers as opposed to just ra it really should be ra as opposed to era because there's so much else that goes into good and bad defense than just like did you muff a ball that you got your glove on so. I'm with you. Ban them. Ban, at least ban errors. You know, there was the old Brian Kenny kill the win. Yeah. I'd, I'd much rather kill the error than kill the win. Well, Brian plays that too. He plays this game, hit or error on the air, and he'll just like run a clip and make all the uh, the panelists guess what it is or, or should be. So I agree with you on that. <laughs> what do you got? As you may have seen this week, uh, the Atlantic League, um, which is a partner with Major League Baseball, is going to experiment with um, some rule changes for the 2021 season. And these are perhaps fairly extreme. Um, the two rule changes um, that are going to be undertaken are um, the what's it, the double hook DH, um, which is probably the more minor one, which is something that I think Jason Stark has been pushing um, for, a, for a while now, which is the idea that you 
have a DH to start the game, but you lose the DH as soon as the starting pitcher ends the game. The idea is basically to have like kind of the best of both worlds of AL and NL because you would incentivize we, a few things. You'd incentivize starting pitchers to pitch longer. The idea being that like starting pitchers who are sort of identifiable and like drive the narrative of games and the season are a good thing for baseball and fandom. Um, so you want to incentivize guys pitching deeper into games. But then you would also have the the strategy element that people seem to like of the National League with, hey, now the pitcher spots up. Do I double switch? Do I pinch hit? Like, what do I do now that, the, you know, this, this relief pitcher has come in and he's now has to hit in the spot that was previously occupied the DH? That's rule number one. The second one, which is only going to happen in the second half of the season because they want to be able to compare first half to second half, is they are going to move the pitcher's mound, the pitcher's rubber back a foot. So instead of being 60 feet, six inches, it is going to be 61 feet, six inches. I think this is awesome. I think this is the, exactly the type of experiments that we should be trying. And I give um, the Atlantic League and the MLB a ton of credit for trying to do this because like, we won't know unless we try. And like, this is exactly the kind of environment we should be um, trying these things. I, there's more I kind of want to say about this, but I want to get your kind of overall take on these things first. Um, I liked the double hook idea a lot more a year ago. Like when I first heard it, I thought it was a really interesting idea to add strategy. But now I've changed my mind. I'm kind of over making it complicated and let's just have a DH and be done with it. You know, like if we really if we really don't want to argue about should pitchers hit or should DHs hit, then just don't let hit pitchers hit and have an eight man lineup and let Mike Trout get more plate appearances. You know, I I think the double hook is a really interesting and cool idea, but I'm not sure it's worth the added complexity. Um, so far as moving the mound back, listen, you you know I am constantly in favor of making things harder for pitchers. I, I truly believe that if we did nothing, like if the sport just did nothing and let everything play out naturally, we are, so right now we're at a 24 and a half percent strikeout rate. I think by 2030, we would get up to like a 30% strikeout rate. I don't think that this is going to stop unless you do something. So the idea of changes, I don't know if I like these changes, but the idea of trying things, 100%, I'm all in. Anybody who says the game's never been changed, leave it alone. No, you're completely wrong about that. It's it's so false. Like the game has changed in terms of in terms of rules, right? Like the DH exists now. And if you go back to like the early 20th century and earlier, uh, the mound wasn't always 60 feet, six inches. And if you really want to go far back, early baseball, the hitters could tell the pitcher where they wanted the pitch to be thrown. (laughs) Like, so, and then you've got, you know, social things like there's night games and integration and traveling internationally. Like, don't tell me the game hasn't changed. It's clearly obviously changed. And that's, we need to react to how great the players are, especially the pitchers and the pitch technology and all of it. Like I said, the rule five guy from Boston is they got this ridiculous change up. It, we, we need to fix those kind of things. So I don't know if this is the right change. I kind of prefer lowering the mount more than moving the mount back. And I think part of that is because I'm not sure what the, like the larger implications of that would be like does every high school field on the planet then need to move their mound next year. I don't know if I love that. Um, and I don't know if it'll work. Like, you know, there's been some suggestions from like, you know, Kyle Bodie who started driveline and now works for the reds that more distance might help the pitcher because it's more room for the pitch to break. The answer is, I don't know if it'll work and maybe it won't. Right. But the whole point is we don't know. So you got to try and that's, I do really like trying this because if it doesn't work, then great. We got some data, move on to the next thing. Um, the only wrong answer here is to do nothing because if, <laughs> if we do nothing, we're, we're screwed. You know, the, the sport will be like 100% strikeouts. We got to do something. Uh, and this is worth trying it. So I'm in favor. Yeah, I was, so I was listening to the ESPN Daily podcast the other day um, and uh, Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers was, was on and um, he was, you know, previously the more famously, the, the general manager of the Houston Rockets and is kind of considered the like Billy Bean of basketball. Like he's basically the guy who figured out, hey, like three-point shots, we should really be taking a lot more of them. They're a much more efficient, you know, way to try and score. And a lot of teams have followed and there's a lot of discussion about has the three-point shot dominated the game. Anyway, it was a really interesting discussion and he had a, a quote in there that I want to read here because um, I think it sort of speaks directly to what MLB is doing right now. He said, as front offices get smarter and smarter, it's going to put a bigger burden on league, on league offices to be more intentional and structured about their rule changes. The general direction when you use data to, to, is to exploit any, any inefficiency, just like in Wall Street, to look for any generator of value or any distortion created by government. 
So the league office is like the government. They create these distortions with the rules that they pass, and teams will exploit those more, and the leagues will have to be more intentional. And when you look at what baseball is doing, like look at the rule changes. Like it's being extremely intentional, right? You look at, okay, they're doing isolated rule changes in low A and high A and double A and triple A this year and sort of trying to test each one of those. And they're also doing this at the Atlantic League. And it doesn't mean that all of them are going to become rules in Major League Baseball. It could be that none of them become rules in Major League Baseball. But like they're trying to sort of test these things to see if they're worth bringing to Major League Baseball. Because as Mike said, like, yeah, we could be going to like, it is entertainment first and foremost. And we're getting to a point where like, there's a pretty broad agreement that there are like entertainment issues. And so these are attempts to try and address them. I was sort of shocked listening to this podcast where Daryl Morey was like, I think the three-point shot has taken over the game. Like I've been talking to the league office about how they need to do something to like make it so the three-point shot no longer dominates the game. I think it's been bad for the game. You know, and he's the guy that basically made it so that the three-point shot dominates the game. Um, it was a fascinating discussion. I'd recommend. Um, I'm excited for these rule changes this year in the minors and the Atlantic League because this is the direction we need to be going in. I, I agree. I, I'm. There's really only two... Well, let me, let me step back on that for a second. There's been one very bad argument. Like I said, people who are against change for the sake of change, right? Because look at other sports have made changes too. You know, the NFL put in the... Uh, the, the two point conversion, right? Like every sport, uh, hockey, um, they kind of outlawed the left wing lock, which is like, you know, the neutral zone trap sort of thing that really killed interest in hockey like 10 years ago because it got super boring. Like changes have always been made. The only half decent argument I've heard made against this is that it maybe stinks a little bit for the guys in the league who are now sort of guinea pigs for this. And, you know, if they're trying to get back into affiliated ball, um, are they playing a different version of the sport? So I'll, I'll hear that. But I'm also not sure what the um, what the alternative is. Like, I don't think you would get the same data if you just hired a bunch of like you know high school or college guys and gave them like a weekend, you know, to throw from six. I feel like you need like actual game experience to get the data. From. Totally. And totally. Th- I think that's why you need it. Uh, that's why it's great to split it in season because generally I hate mid in season changes, but in this case it makes sense because now you can compare guys to themselves, right? Like. You're not hypothetically comparing, you know, Jacob Degrom to Tommy Malone. You're comparing Jacob Degrom from 60 feet six inches to himself at 61 feet, and that's exactly how these experiments need to work. So I'm in, and I am really excited to see what happens. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We will see you next week. Bye.